Protecting your health is a lifelong journey. We've always protected Floridians through innovative solutions. COVID-19 is no exception. Early treatment saves lives. It definitely saved mine. Talk to your doctor about what can work best for you. As always, it is important to maintain a healthy immune system and stay active. Let's live. Good evening, everyone. Um, let me start out by showing off my new shirt from the FLCCC store. I know you're jealous. Um, I love it. I put it on about 10 minutes ago and um, I don't know, it's sharp looking, I'm representing. Um, so let me, um, let's talk about what we're gonna do tonight. So number one, you guys just saw a video, um, which I think is pretty remarkable, right? So that is, um, that was Joe Ladapo, the Surgeon General of Florida, who, They've started a campaign, and um, let's talk about that campaign. So give me one second. I'm going to call up some slides here. Um, oh, before I get into my stuff, um, number one, you see me. You don't see Betsy. Uh, Betsy's doing fine. Uh, she missed last week. Uh, she had a little issue this week. Same thing, but she's doing great. She'll be back uh, be, be back soon. So she, she's doing okay. Um, also, warning, Paul was supposed to be on with me tonight. He's also under the weather, so uh, I'm going to soldier on uh, myself and and some of my colleagues who are going to help. So um, uh, anyway, just uh, don't get worried when it starts out with me and everyone else has disappeared. Um, it's just what it is tonight. Uh, and then I'm seeing questions. Did Betsy have surgery? Betsy's just fine. Don't worry about Betsy. Um, so piggybacking off of that video, um, let me share some slides with you. I just think that video is really cool. So that's Joe Ladapo, Surgeon General, who actually has been a, a longstanding champion of early treatment. He's written a couple of really impressive uh, op-eds that were published in the Wall Street Journal over many months, calling attention to the uh, evidence of efficacy around not only hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, but other, other medications as well. Um, you know, and so when you see a state you know, one of the largest states in the country start to publicize a campaign which basically says early treatment saves lives. I think that's really remarkable, right? So, so essentially, they are making their way independent of the federal agencies. Remember, there is no early treatment campaign that's being publicized by the federal agencies. I mean, yes, they, they've sort of recommended monoclonal antibodies, um, but look at what Florida did. I mean, they're just using good, clean, common sense, sound medical practice, something that has actually been advocated for over two years. I don't want to say the FLCCC were the uh, pioneers in early treatment because we weren't. That was actually, I would argue that was Dr. Peter McCullough, Dr. Harvey Risch, and the American Association of Physicians and Surgeons. They, from the spring of 2020 onwards, started talking about how early uh, combination therapy protocols were, were, were key to treating this disease. And so um, we came into the picture when we sort of started to identify and advocate uh, for the role of ivermectin. Um, but look at, look at what the Florida protocol has, right? So look, it has monoclonal antibodies, fluvoxamine, inhaled budesonide, vaccination, exercise and activity, nutrition, vitamin C, vitamin D, zinc, and also quercetin. And if you look, 
every single element except for budesonide is on our protocol. So they are taking a page from our book, the AAPS's book, which is multimodal combination therapy. And so I just find it so reassuring that a major health agency uh, that, you know, which governs Florida is putting forth a campaign really promoting the idea of eight of early treatment. Come on, guys. We can't keep talking about the hospital and, and, and the drugs that we use in the hospital. We've got to keep patients out of the hospital. So I talked about uh, Florida's campaign. Um, you know, and, and, I, and I, so I think that's such a positive um, development. And I don't want to talk, I, I don't want to turn to the negative, but I do think it's really important we talk about something because we've been fighting this war of advocacy for early treatment, combination treatment, using numbers of therapeutics, one of which, as you guys know, has been ivermectin. And a big development happened around ivermectin in the last week. If you guys were with us last week, you'll know that I covered the war on repurposed drugs. And I referenced these two books, in particular, the book by Bobby Kennedy, um, where he covers all of the machinations and the sort of the chicanery around hydroxychloroquine in 2020. But tonight, I want to talk a little bit more about ivermectin. And so, um, hold on, let me see if I can advance. How do I advance? So tonight, um, I don't know, it's probably some of you who are watching are familiar with what's broken this week, which is that Andrew Hill, and if you guys don't know who Andrew Hill is, you will after tonight's talk, um, but he was a former collaborator of the FLCCC and Tess Laurie. Um, he's a researcher on ivermectin, and it's finally come into public knowledge. We've known this for many, many months, in fact, almost a year. Um, but he's essentially uh, been captured and has, uh, has basically done multiple corrupt actions to try to distort and suppress the evidence of efficacy around ivermectin. It's now public knowledge. And I will say that one of the ways in which it came out was this book, which is The Real Anthony Fauci. There's a transcript in there. Um, there's a recorded Zoom call where Tess Laurie actually... Um, uh, sort of interrogates him. They have an argument and it's all recorded. The entire transcript is available. And now it's starting to be picked up in the popular press. So this is a World Tribune article. This is in something called The Conservative Woman, a UK publication. And they're all dissecting this tape and this transcript. And let me talk about tonight what this means and what actually occurred. So um, Tess actually reached out to us today because she was on a very popular and very widely viewed show called The Dana Show by Dana Lesh. She's a, a journalist and a, and, a, and a talk show host who interviewed Tess. And Tess played uh, uh, quite a bit of her clips of the recorded Zoom call that Tess had with Andrew Hill. And, and I, I would recommend that everybody watch this program. I think it's really important. I think it brings a lot of uh, issues uh, to light. Now, before we go into exactly what that is, I want to give it context. If you remember my talk last week, I talked about disinformation. So when corporate or financial interests find that there is science that runs counter to their interest, they employ disinformation tactics. I, if you remember last week, I talked about how the tobacco lobby and the tobacco industry perfected these maneuvers. 
And when you look at the history of disinformation, which is corporations who really try to suppress and attack science that really goes against their financial interests, it can be boiled down to five main actions. And I just want you to, to understand that the behavior around I, Andrew Hill and what happened to Andrew Hill can only be viewed in terms of what's called the fix, which is one of their most popular tactics in trying to suppress inconvenient science. And it's when they manipulate government officials or scientists or processes to influence policy inappropriately. Many examples exist. If you want to talk about the fix in particular, I highlighted this in red, where they actually went after individual FDA officials to downplay the risk of an animal drug, which was causing really arsenic poisoning. And so they went after the scientists to get this thing approved. And so um, it's a common tactic. There are other tactics, right? The blitz, the diversion, the screen, many of those I've given examples of, um, and I will give a couple more tonight. So let's talk about what happened with Andrew Hill. Again, some more background, because although this is about Andrew Hill's actions, we have to understand why Andrew Hill did this. He is under the influence of massive financial interests. Andrew Hill happens to be someone who works for, and if you look at this red highlighted uh, um, uh, text here, he was employed under the ACT Accelerator pr Program, which was like the Advanced COVID Therapeutics Accelerator. They wanted to accelerate advancements in diagnostics, vaccines, and therapeutics. And he was in the therapeutics arm. And this was actually a program that was governed by UNITAID, which is a, a multinational or international organization, which is largely and primarily funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. In this article in the New Republic by Alexander Zaitchik, who's an investigative reporter, he did this exhaustive review of Bill Gates' influence on public health around the world. And he essentially states in this article that Unitaid is essentially an arm of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Now, many people understand the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation to be a philanthropic organization, which is how they present themselves. But if you read this article, you actually come to find that they are actually essentially a representative of the vaccine lobby. And they do many, many actions and advocacy largely to further the interests of the vaccinators. And in fact, if you look at this, Gavi, which is another heavily funded um, uh, consortium uh, by Bill and Melinda Gates, they came out against ivermectin. So I just want to put this in the background because it's really Unitaid that employed Andrew Hill. So when, you, when I describe Andrew Hill's activities, please know who his funders were. Okay. How do we know Andrew Hill? Because we know him actually quite well. He used to be a colleague and a collaborator of mine. So number one, he's a longtime consultant. He's worked in public health for many decades, and he has done reviews, and he's made recommendations for guidelines on the treatment of multiple illnesses around the world. So HIV, he was a prominent researcher in, in therapeutics around HIV and hepatitis C. In COVID, Interestingly, and this is the one part that I can't explain, which is that Unitaid, which is largely run by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, they actually formed a team to study repurposed drugs. 
Um, and so that's that, that's the only thing that I can't answer. Why would they do that? Because that's actually the enemy. And I've been saying that for, for a year now, that the, the enemy of novel profitable therapeutics is repurposed drugs. But anyway, they formed a team. He was at the head of the team. They studied compounds starting in June of 2020. Everything they looked at was found to be ineffective. But interestingly, Right around the same time, a little bit after the FLCCC, and that's really started with Dr. Marek, who first identified a very, very strong signal of efficacy around ivermectin. And then I fell in behind Paul. We started to do review. We started to do our paper. We put up a preprint. Soon after that, he started looking at ivermectin under suggestion of a mentor. And how we first met Andrew Hill was that actually at a conference almost a year ago today. It was actually, if I remember correctly, it was December 16th. 2020, I was invited to lecture to present my review of ivermectin at a conference. And one of the other presenters was Andrew Hill. And Paul Marek watched his lecture. And he told me afterwards, he said, hey, there's a guy from the WHO who's looking at ivermectin who's also saying really positive things. And so I emailed the guy, I asked the conference uh, organizer, I said, hey, can you put me in touch with this researcher named Andrew Hill? And Paul and I started to exchange emails and talk. And I got to tell you, at the beginning, it was really kind of exciting because all of us were giddy around the evidence that we were seeing around ivermectin. And we started sharing data and papers. And in fact, um, soon after my testimony, if you guys remember, I gave testimony December 8th, 2020, which kind of went viral and it brought ivermectin to the forefront. We were asked to present to the National Institutes of Health. And you know who we asked to lead the presentation? Andrew Hill. And the reason why we asked him is because his scope of work for Unitaid was that he was supposed to scour the world's registries of controlled trials to find all active randomized controlled trials of ivermectin. And he had this huge database of active randomized controlled trials. He had results of all of the active trials that had been completed. And so he had a database that was far greater than what we had. And we said, Andy, we have to go to the NIH. Can you bring your data? Because your data is bigger and stronger than ours. And he did present with us. And we presented the NIH on January 6th. And if you guys have been following the story, on January 12th, 2021, the NIH changed their recommendation for ivermectin from one of do not use outside of a control trial to one of neutral, which is we can't recommend we can't not recommend. So they couldn't recommend against or for. And they became, they sat at neutral as the NIH. And that was after our presentation. Around the same time, I'm just kind of doing a timeline of our interaction with Andrew Hill. And I want to give you guys context for what actually Andrew Hill did. And so you know where he came from and explain his later actions. So after my testimony in early December, um, uh, a world-renowned researcher named Tess Laurie, uh, who's uh, South African by, by origin, but works in the UK. Um, and she has long done research for major governmental international health agencies. She saw my testimony and she, in her words, said she was quite intrigued by this doctor who was, I don't know, very emotionally talking about ivermectin. She said, what, what does this doctor talk about? So she started to analyze the data herself. And what she found was that the doctor, that would be me on the left side of the screen, was actually credible. And that what he was saying was actually supported by the evidence. And so 
um, she said that around Christmas, New Year's, when she saw my uh, testimony, which was late December 2020, she did a rapid review and then she immediately filmed in her living room a video appeal to Boris Johnson, which, by the way, got immediately taken down by TestTube, uh, by YouTube, not TestTube. Um, but that video appeal actually kind of went viral because um, Tess presents well. She's a very erudite. A uh, very well-known um, <clears throat> and highly credentialed researcher, and she basically made an appeal that we have a drug that can be effective in the early treatment of COVID. Now, what happened after her testimony or her uh, YouTube is that that got very rapidly taken down from YouTube. She got attacked and was marginalized. Meanwhile, Andrew Hill continued to collect data. And he was saying increasingly positive things throughout January of 2021. He was tweeting things that he was finding, which is that it was looking like a, a, an effective antiviral, faster viral clearance in multiple randomized controlled trials in this objective outcome. Then he, he, he would start to say things in lectures. I have been studying repurposed drugs since the beginning of the pandemic, and I have not seen um, uh, anything like this consistency in the results on viral load and time to viral clearance from different centers and countries around the world. And then in a, in a, in a lecture in late January in South Africa, um, a week after I had given a lecture there, he wrote, he said, the probability that the effect of ivermectin on survival is a chance finding is currently one in 5,000. So in terms of risk benefit, the risk of ordering it right now and not using it is very low. The only other risk is of taking too high doses, but we have no reports of serious safety issues. And then in January 19th, he tweeted, the purpose of this report is to forewarn people that this is coming. Get prepared, get supplies, get ready to prove it. We need to be ready. He's literally speaking to the world in this tweet. Another tweet is he writes, the vaccine cuts transmission risk by 54%. But the new strains are much more transmissible. Ivermectin causes faster viral clearance. Mass vaccination plus ivermectin treatment for anyone testing virus positive is the way forward. He was literally getting louder and louder. He was like us. We were saying ivermectin is the answer. Ivermectin is the answer. But now, guys, is where the, the story kind of turns sideways and it turns really, really bad. So this researcher that was working alongside me, Paul, and Tess, Suddenly, he went sideways. So after we got to know Tess, and we had some awesome conversations, I knew she was like a serious, very dedicated, very meticulous researcher. She understood the evidence that as we had, we had great conversations. And we said, hey, we have this researcher from the WHO and Unitaid. He has all this data. And we brought him into the fold. And we started having conversations but then Tess started complaining to us that he was acting very bizarrely around her and that he was not being as responsive, not being as uh, collaborative as we had found him to be to that point. And he started to tell us that he was going to finish his meta-analysis. And here's where everything changed, guys. So this is the entire point of the story. This is what happened. So it, I think it was January 19th of last year, you know, Andy had told us he was working on his meta-analysis preprint, and we knew it was overwhelming positive. And then suddenly it showed up on a preprint server. And when I downloaded and read it, 
Paul and I, we like turned white. We'd never seen such a crazy paper. Meaning most papers, when we do peer reviews, the results, most investigators will overstate the results. And then you have to force them to downplay their conclusions because most investigators are uh, you know, a little bit too enthusiastic. They think they've, they've found a new solution to every disease, and they tend to overstate the impact of their findings. And we found this paper to be really remarkable in the opposite, which the data was so robust, so ro- uh, profound. It showed massive reductions in mortality, time to clinical recovery, time to faster viral clearance. And then when you look at the conclusion, which is here in the discussion, we read it and we were like, what is this? Like, it was almost like someone wanted to say, hey, this thing works 10 ways from Sunday, but don't use it. And we could not figure out why this paper made so little sense. And so what happened is Paul and I were so upset. We wrote to Andy immediately. We were like, what are you doing posting this preprint with all of this nonsense? And when we read the paper, Paul and I actually did a peer review. We did a what I would call a pro bono peer review. We saw so many problems with this paper that we immediately wrote an email. And this was my email to him that, that preceded the peer review, which is an extensive peer review that attacked multiple, multiple claims in his paper. Dear Andrew, this is when I was being collaborative and collegial. I said, thank you for sharing your preprint. We we enjoyed your recent talk, but we have some concerns. And I said, you know, we thought it would be helpful to you because we thought you're basically, I'm going to just, I'm just going to translate this, guys. We thought your paper was so so full of shit that we want to help you to write a better paper because it doesn't make sense. And we hope you find the below suggested revisions helpful as you are embarking on a peer review, but more importantly, to allow you this opportunity to strengthen the manuscript while it is being read and shared widely. Accuracy and soundness of this version is critical. And then we went even further. We were trying to be careful with him. We said, we are highly disturbed that there may be scientific misconduct or fraud being committed by your superiors or some non-authors, as we do not believe your true opinions and interpretations are what is written in the manuscript. We knew that what he had said and what we had discussed and what we knew together was not what was in that paper. We knew that something happened to that paper. And in that peer review, I won't won't go through it with you guys, but these were kind of the high points. There were so many inaccuracies and actual factual inaccuracies. Like it inflated the benefits of these uh, for-profit drugs that actually weren't supported by the evidence. There were all these limitations of ivermectin and of the paper in weird places that were redundant and repetitive. He kept mentioning that that ivermectin could never achieve effective tissue concentrations using standard dosing regimens, which he knew was false. We had evidence from the premier researchers on this topic in Australia, uh, Kylie Wagstaff and Leon Kelly. They had repeated their initial studies and they found that effective tissue concentrations could be reached, yet he purposely did not include that in his paper. 
And and then he kept saying that ivermectin had no antiviral. Like it, it was like bizarre because the guy that we knew and the conversation that we had and what he wrote was like night and day. And then he would say that the weaknesses with that the doses and duration were heterogeneous. Actually, that's not true. The fact that doses and durations were heterogeneous allowed him to prove a dose response relationship. And then he would attack meta analyses. I mean, it was literally crazy town. Tess, who was also involved in the group, we were all collaborative. She starts to see that he's behaving oddly. And this is this is the key to this uh, talk tonight, is that she schedules a Zoom meeting with Andrew. Me and Paul were not present. Um, I invite you guys to read the transcripts. It's in all of those articles that I presented earlier. So I'm going backwards here. So in uh, The Conservative Woman, in the World Tribune, as well as in Matt Crawford's Rounding the Earth uh, Substack, very, very well detailed is the transcript. And also in uh, The Real Anthony Fauci, the transcript of everything that was said between Tess Laurie and Andrew Hill is, is in those articles and in that book. And I, I absolutely ask you to review that because if you see what is said, there are two things that are said. There are just insane corrupt actions and statements by Andrew Hill, but there are some of the most uplifting and some of the most ethical and moral um, arguments by Tess Laurie. Um, I mean, she, she, she won my heart long before this, but, but I mean, she is a, she is the ethical conscience of medicine. And so when you see this conversation, I mean, it, it, it's, it's truly remarkable, but the, the heart of the conversation and what we really need to call attention to, because this isn't about a scientific debate. This isn't about like evidence, this or that, or anything like that. This is about people dying. And this comes from an article about this conversation. And I'm just going to read it. But in this conversation, Hill affirmed that the rate of death at that time was 15,000 people per day globally. At the 80% recovery rate using the drug at that time, which Hill and Laurie discussed earlier in the call, the number of preventable deaths incurred by the delay that he was proposing, which was six weeks, would be a half a million people. This isn't just scientists debating, you know, uh, granularities or subtleties of the data. This is literally people dying because this guy does not want to call attention to the fact that we have a life-saving drug. And so Tess recorded this. She has that recording. We didn't know what to do with it. We didn't know how to bring it to the attention of the world. There was so much power against us. But just keep in mind, when you see what happened to Andy, it's a tactic called the fix is where you actually co-opt and capture researchers. And he worked for Unitate. This has now been well documented that there are uh, investigations against him. And if you look at actually what he admitted, he literally admitted that his funders of his research wrote the conclusions of his paper. That the, the, when we couldn't understand the conclusions, it's because he didn't write them. He allowed other people to write them. And those other people clearly did not want ivermectin to be recommended. Let's go back to this conclusion. Look at what it says. This sentence in particular makes no sense. Ivermectin should be validated in larger appropriately controlled randomized controlled trials before the results are sufficient for review by regulatory authorities. I've never heard of a doctor or researcher talk about 
what is sufficient for review by regulatory authorities. No doctor writes that. No researcher writes that. That was clearly written by a regulatory authority. And so um, on that on that issue, when we talk about the scientific misconduct, there's a large organization in France called Bon Sens, and they have brought a major legal action against the WHO, the French regulatory system, as well as Andrew Hill, where he's named. And they hired a forensic communication uh, uh, expert who analyzed the paper that Andrew Hill posted. And that analyst found that there were clearly two to three different authors. Andrew Hill's writing is clearly identified by tone, structure, and syntax. And there's clearly a non-attributable author who's a regulator, who doesn't speak English as a primary language, who they have clearly identified, totally influenced the writing of his paper. So it's literally a corrupt paper. And just so you guys know, if you want to know who might have done that and who might have asked him to be allowed to do that, one week before that paper was posted, Unitaid, again, an arm of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, largely, gave his university that employs him a $40 million grant to his university where he's long done his work. And so if you can't, when I've been saying for a year, this stuff is not subtle, it's not subtle. And ever since then, he first published a meta-analysis that was very supportive. That was a philanthropy organization, the Rainwater Foundation, paid him to finish his meta-analysis. It was overwhelmingly supportive of ivermectin. After he did that for the philanthropy, since then, he's been on the attack. He calls all of the evidence fraudulent, low quality, weak. It's what all of the uh, pharmaceutical companies do when they can't control the data. They call it all insufficient, low quality, um, and, 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 uh, and, and now fraudulent. They're literally trying to complain, uh, to, to, to describe all of the evidence around ivermectin as fraudulent. And I just want you guys to know, this is the battle. This is what I've lived through my entire year. And so the reason why I'm talking about it tonight is because the truth is coming out. You know, all of the attacks I've gotten for erroneously claiming that something works, you guys have to understand why I have had and we've had as an organization so much headwinds is because the other side is literally paying high, you know, high level prominent scientists to tell us that the evidence is weak. The other things that they do besides the fix is something called the blitz. And I want to talk about that. The blitz is when they go after good scientists and they make them seem bad. Right. So here they went after with Andrew Hill, they went after good scientists and they made him say bad things for money. Now they're after going after good scientists and saying that they're bad and they do bad research. There's a huge attack on Dr. Hector Carvalho, who's one of my favorite and I think one of the leading experts in COVID. Everything that he's done, all of his research, all of his protocols have been spot on since the beginning. And they went after him saying that he did a bad study, that he did unethical things and everything of the opposite is true. And this is what they do. And by the way, if you guys want to know of a little bit more close to home tactic called um, the blitz, does anyone know the scandal around the NFL with their chronic tra traumatic encephalopathy, right? So when all of those poor football players who were retired, who developing brain illness and violence and, and, and actually causing suicide, and researchers started to find it was because they had massive chronic hemorrhages throughout their brain and they're developing mental illnesses later on in their life. 
Guess what happened to those scientists who brought that inconvenient science to light? They were attacked as fraudulent. Their uh, characters and their reputations uh, were maligned. And that's the same thing that's happening with Hector Carvalho. I need to point this out. These are the tactics that they do. And then just to go on in the absurdity, I'm going to finish here, but I just have to keep calling attention to how captured all of this is. The chief scientist of the WHO literally references a pharmaceutical company. Guys, before COVID, when was the last time that we looked to a pharmaceutical company for objective, sound evidence supporting the use or non-use of a drug? I mean, this, this is ridiculous. Our public health agencies are literally relying or, or, or advocating that pharmaceutical companies have our best interests at heart. And uh, she's actually in trouble. Um, I'm going to finish with this last point just to end with the absurdities, guys. And I probably went too long. But let's talk about what happened today. Just to, just to, just to finish off this tour of absurdity that I've lived in in the past. Let's talk about Merck, guys. So what's Merck been up to? Number one, when the pandemic started, they explicitly refused the request of Nobel Prize winning discoverer of ivermectin, Satoshi Mura. He wanted to study its effects in COVID. And they said, no, we had no intention of doing any clinical trials on ivermectin. Interesting. Then six months later, they say, out of nowhere, when, when ivermectin started to get attention after my testimony, after our paper, after Tess Laurie's testimony, after her paper, suddenly Merck posts on their website, we can find no basis for an effect, no evidence of activity, and we don't think it's safe. Out of nowhere, no scientists authored this and no data was presented. They just put this as a PR statement. So first they say um, that they won't study it. Then they say it's not safe. And then you know what happened today, guys? I'm going to finish off here. This absurd article, which we came across today, <laughs> one of the largest randomized controlled trials in the world done by in the United Kingdom, studying the effects of ivermectin and COVID. And I'm, I'm trying not to laugh here, guys, but they literally, there's a front page on MedPage today that suddenly they ran out of ivermectin. Notice the pregnant pause. They ran out of ivermectin. So <laughs> they're not continuing this. So first they say we're not studying it. Then they say we don't think it's safe. And now they're running out of supply. The three S's, don't study it. It's not safe. And we don't have enough supply to study it. I mean, this is absolutely absurd. Um, as one of our staff members, um, uh, one of our head, head of communication, she made a joke today that maybe they should appeal to some of the Central or West African countries that use it in their Mectazan programs and ask them, you know, to donate some supplies so they can continue the trial. Um, I don't think that's going to happen, but I, I, I don't think you guys understand how absurd this is that they're literally stopping this trial, citing a supply issue. All right, I'm going to finish here. I just want you guys to listen to this one-minute response by Tess Laurie on a question that she was posed today on the Dana show. This is essentially what I've been saying for a year. And listening to Tess, she just says it better and just much more profoundly than I do. But listen to this. You, Dr. Laurie, why does ivermectin get such a, uh, why does it have such a, or developing such a bad reputation with, with, it seems like when you look at the headlines, why are so many people so critical of ivermectin? Well, in my opinion, um, you know, the, the, there's been a huge. Sorry. I wanted to ask you, Dr. Laurie, why does ivermectin get such 
a uh, why does it have such a or developing such a bad reputation with with it seems like when you look at the headlines why are so many people so critical of ivermectin well in my opinion um you know the, the there's been a huge amount of propaganda and misinformation disinformation uh, it feels like there's been a big campaign waged against ivermectin and indeed early treatments um but um i i think because ivermectin is so effective uh, it would have been a total game changer. And in my opinion, over the past year, there has to be something else going on uh, at the moment. Um, things just don't add up. So, you know, I'm really uh, hoping that by sharing this information, just to show how the science has been so um, corrupted in a way, it's not reliable and um, people really need to look further than uh, what they see on the news and even what they read in the scientific journals, uh, you know, because um, that's certainly not the full story. So, I don't know, if you heard Tess, she just says it so much more nicely than I do, I do but it says it's equally disturbing. And so, um, guys, we, we, you know, I want to end on a positive note. So we're going to take some questions on what I just presented, but just keep in mind, you know, we started with a really positive development, which is, you know, Joe Ladapo, the Surgeon General of Florida and Florida really starting a campaign for early treatment with, with safe, sound, you know, risk over benefit, you know, advocacy for immune strengthening, good therapeutics, fluvoxamine, uh, monoclonal antibodies, budesonide, and then a number of uh, other immune fortifying agents that we know will lead to better prognosis with COVID. And so I hope that the way Florida goes, other states go, because if you look at the federal agencies, they literally will not recommend, you know, uh, just simple sound treatments uh, similar to what the FLCCC and other organizations have done. And so um, I don't know, I went a little bit long there, Joyce, but um, I'm okay. sure I it triggered some questions. Yes, a lot of questions. So um, this first one is actually part comment, part question. Um, it's from a, um, a, a barrister or a um, solicitor from England. Uh, his name is Eric Labhart. And Eric writes, um, based on the Zoom recorded interview, which is evidence of possible criminal medical fraud, in the UK, under the Fraud Act of 2006, there is an offense of knowingly receiving financial gain dishonestly and or by deception for either personal or company financial gain. All that is required is a Section 9 completed statement plus reference in the statement to a copy of the video as an exhibit to the Bath Constabulary. In addition, a formal medical complaint signed by several doctors to the General Medical Council should be made. Any emails, presentations, and observations, discussions you had with Dr. Hill can be submitted as evidential exhibits to prove this criminal case. I would strongly suggest that Tess goes uh, to a good criminal UK lawyer to prepare this criminal case using such witness statements containing all her evidence plus any witness evidence that can be submitted um, on separate statements by doctors. Even the letters you wrote to him are evidence and his responses. I have prosecuted in the UK Magistrates Court and Crown Court cases of fraud under the Fraud Act of 2006 in the UK. 
This was my profession for over 20 years. I don't know that there's a question there, Joyce, but- There's really not a question. So, so but... Hold on, I'm gonna just say briefly. Yeah. What that man wrote is exactly what I've been saying for a long time. It's time for the lawyers and the legislators. Like, I want him to rise up, give us guidance. We're doctors. We don't know how to do this stuff. We know when, we, when we're seeing crazy stuff and, and, and fraud. And, and you saw from my email to Andy a year ago, I, you know, I was being gentle because I was trying to preserve a relationship. And I actually had the foolish hope that he was going to change his preprint. And I thought that I was actually being good cop. Paul was being bad cop. Paul was actually much more stern with him. And I was just saying, hey, Andy, we, we, we smell something rotten here. And but now that we're a year later, what that lawyer just wrote, I mean, he's totally correct. I I, I mean, I'll talk to Tess. Uh, I do know that there are actions. Uh, I don't know that they're criminal, but this evidence, not only the forensic communications analyst who nails Andy and shows the uh, uh, unattributed authors who wrote his paper for him, all of that evidence, including this recording, is going into a major legal action in France against their regulatory authority. And so my sense is that this will appear in a number of actions. Uh, again, I'm not a lawyer. I, I, yeah. but, but I appreciate everything he just said. And maybe he can reach out to us afterwards and, and we can put him in touch with Tess. Yeah, that would be uh, that would be good. So if Eric, if you're listening, give us a, a write an email to us and we'll we'll respond. Um, you said earlier, Pierre, in your uh, presentation, that you were surprised that Unitaid was going to take up the study of repurposed drugs. So Anonymous asks, don't you think the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation studied repurposed drugs to know what to suppress? Maybe that was the part that I didn't. Uh... <laughs> well, he, here's the interesting thing about that question is that. Um, so whenever you hear about conspiracy theories, like one of the one of the things that you wonder is like most people aren't smart enough to pull off a conspiracy. And, and here's here's what I mean by that is that. If they did it for that reason, they they didn't keep their eye on the ball, because what happened is that a guy named Andy Hill found ivermectin, found it to be effective and started lecturing and publishing and collaborating like we were all working together and he would he was in that you know that famous south africa lecture which wowed the country of south africa everybody was like wow ivermectin really is the solution but you know what happened after the south africa lecture i didn't talk about this but that was january 29 2021 okay. within two days of the south africa lecture andy hill told me he had a muzzle He's no longer allowed to speak publicly and he's no longer allowed that. to share any data with us. So to answer the question that you just brought up, if that was their uh, approach, they, they didn't keep their eye on the ball because they had a rogue researcher who started running his mouth talking about how ivermectin could end this pandemic. And once they realized that he was getting a lot of attention, Man, they slapped a muzzle on him really quickly, and he never spoke publicly again until the next public statement that he ever made was a negative one. That's right. That's right. So, so 
Yeah, I don't know. They didn't do it perfectly if they if that was their intent. Right. So you, uh, there's a lot of questions that allude to the following question I'm going to ask you. And that is, um, I think people need to understand that this was sort of, um, Andy Hill is the one who wrote the paper, but not the conclusions. Correct. So, right. So who is, in, in what order does culpability fall? With Unitate, with the WHO, with Dr. Hill, I mean, what what is the sort of order there where you would look at it and say, you know, this this is the entity or the person that is most culpable in this? And I know we talked about that in six weeks, nearly half a million people would perish. And I know in the in the transcript he told he told Tess it'll just take six weeks and we'll we'll get ivermectin approved. Of course, that's not what happened. So. Yeah. 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 I think we all do what we, we do naturally. I think we all have good intentions. I think Andy had a good intention. He's, he's a researcher. He's interested in studying medicines. And I think he started out. Um, I, cause I remember my first conversations with him. I mean, he and I were both, I wouldn't say giddy, but we were just like, wow, man, this thing's really doing well. And then I started to talk to other doctors. I started to use it in my practice. And I was like, I'm telling you, I mean, turning patients around, like you wouldn't believe, um, and so I think that stuff was happening. However, you know, when you ask like who played what role, I think what happened to Andy is very quickly, he came across the big lesson that I've learned. It, and, and I've said this multiple times in different, in different sort of venues, but what I've, one of the main things that I've learned is that most people like to remain employed. Employment is a very critical aspect of most people's livelihoods. It, it really means the welfare of your family, of your career, your future, you, your, your reputation. And so employment is so um, critically valuable. What I found that happened to Andy is that, you know, he had every intention of being faithful to the science and disseminating that science until it came to be that if he continued to do that, he was going to see some really rough headwinds. And they basically said, no, 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 no. We're going to help you with your paper. This is what your paper needs to say. And he stood by because if he stood up and he went public, his career is done, his future contracts are done, everything. And so what I find about Andy is that um, he was the wrong guy for history. You, you needed a guy with courage um, who was willing to stand up against influence and, and speak their mind and really uh, not, not submit to, to those forces. And, and he was not that man. I, I think he's a craven coward. And um, a, as a result of his cowardice, um, I do believe that horrific impacts on humanity has resulted. Yeah, because when you think about it, um, the, the uh, paper went to the WHO, uh, which has uh, global uh, impacts uh, that for, for what they recommend and what they don't recommend. And so by not recommending ivermectin, the entire world was impacted. There's, there's no question. 
And, but so going back to that original question, so like who, what, when, so that was Andy, but Andy quickly deferred and submitted to his funders, his sponsors. And so much so he even got a little sweetheart deal. I mean, um, <laughs> when I say things aren't subtle, Joyce, the 40 million that landed at the University of Liverpool, that. you know, four days before his preprint. I mean, I, you know what? I'm sure it was just co- coincidence. Okay. Oh, of course it was but, coincidence. But, but not only that, that it came from Unitaid, but to pretend that Unitaid and WHO is something different. I mean, the major funder of both organizations is the Bill and, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. They're literally everywhere. They fund most of media, media organizations, public health agencies everywhere. They have more money than God. And so, you know, I don't want to sound unhinged and and sort of this conspiracy theorist attacking Bill Gates. But in my experience as a physician and researcher trying to treat this disease, every time I see headwinds where I see something behaving non-scientifically, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is literally two clicks away every single turn. And so tonight's talk really brings that out to the forefront. That's why I brought up that uh, article in the New Republic by that investigative reporter. That is a damning article. Yes. It shows a, a, a long-standing pattern of behavior of, of influence over public health and really a vaccine policy around the world. And and it's it's become overwhelming. And, and so, you know, again, I... Like I said, Andy Hill is just, I, I he, he was just not a man of the moment. Yeah. You know, he, he caved, he's a craven coward, and, and he's exactly how they can achieve their non-scientific objectives. They can co-opt and buy off weak-ass researchers. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so, so I don't want to... Um, uh, put you on the spot. And this is the last question I'll ask you on this because we do have a video we want to show in just a few moments on on a completely different subject. But this will be the last sort of um, uh, talk about this. And I I really don't want to put you on the spot and don't answer if if you're uncomfortable doing this, okay? The, The question is, given what has happened and given the timing of what happened last year when 15,000 people a day were dying, thank goodness that's not happening uh, anymore. People are still dying, but not at that rate. Is there any way to quantify the human impact on the decision to rewrite the conclusions of that paper and have the WHO come out and say, we cannot recommend this before other trials? are given. Is there any way to quantify that human impact? I don't know that there is. No, I think I think it's very easy to do that. And, and here's where I'll answer that, is if you look at where we are now, right, which is that you have two novel oral antivirals that are being proposed to the world to be used, right? One is a drug called molnupiravir. Right which has uh, a fraction of the efficacy of ivermectin. And it is it met FDA approval based on one trial in which the first half of the trial was overtly positive and the second half of the trial showed that the placebo was better. It had very modest effects and now it's meeting approval. Okay, so let's, meanwhile, you have ivermectin, which a year ago already had 
dozens of trials, observation randomized showing efficacy. We actually already have FDA approval of Molnupir. I think it's an EUA. It is. Had we had ivermectin approved by our agencies a year ago, looking at some of the health ministry programs, whether it be Uttar Pradesh or Misiones Argentina, I really like Misiones Argentina. Maybe I'm cherry picking, but that is one of the best results because Misiones Argentina, in their early treatment program of 4,000 patients, 0.6 megs per kg given for five days, they showed an 88% reduction in death. So as in the best case scenario, all of the deaths between, let's say, February or March. uh, The the other really important paper that I think the world has ignored is the Mexico City paper, right? um, Because just so you guys know, like we've been advocating all this stuff, but what, what people don't understand in history is that Mexico City, the IMSS, which is the Instituto Mexical Seguros... Social Seguridad, right? It's it's actually a part of their healthcare, uh, their state healthcare agency. When they were um, inundated with uh, with COVID last year in Mexico City, a city of 25 million people, they expanded 250 mobile testing units, rapid testing, and treatment kits with ivermectin. And during that six to eight week period that they collected data, they showed a 74 percent reduction in hospitalization. I would say probably a higher reduction in death, although they didn't report that. That was already known in March. And if you do that on a mass scale in a major city, you could drastically reduce death. And so it's not only the fact that, you know, Andy did what he did, because it's not just Andy, right, Joyce? It's it's literally the, the, when I talked about Bill Gates and how he controls the media, it's the mass suppression of the media, the censorship and propaganda. The fact that the Mexico City paper was not front page news around the world when it was published on a preprint in March, that to me changed the world. Just that paper. And nobody knows about that paper. Only I, because I'm an ivermectin geek, know about that paper. And then Uttar Pradesh, the fact that Uttar Pradesh achieved one of the most historic public health achievements in history against a uh, pandemic illness, and yet not one newspaper in the world covered it. And the ones that did cover it didn't mention ivermectin. So, so it's really not just Andy. I mean, this is a, this is a mass influence of uh, not only censorship, propaganda, as well as distortion of science and research. And so it, it's really a very many tentacled beast. And that's why it's been hard to be who I am, because like, I know this thing works and I have to see how all of this is behaving. Yeah, a lot of people know it works too. I mean, in, in, in the real world, it works. We're getting so many of those stories in. We've asked people to submit to my story at flccc.net and we're getting hundreds of stories of people saved by ivermectin and of course the uh, adjuvant therapies that that you and Paul and the rest of the critical care team and the doctors have have given. Um, wow, it's a lot to take in. You know what? Instead of instead of doing um, just switching gears, it's a little hard to switch gears. It's almost eight o'clock right now. Let's take a couple more questions, uh, and then we'll save that video um, on uh, some. Yeah, we'll we'll, we'll finish on a high positive sort of you know yes instructive yes. note. But yeah, yeah. sounds good. 
Okay. Um, we get this question from Max Cusimano, who says, Merry Christmas. Will ivermectin protect against a house full of boosted relatives? Will ivermectin protect against? <laughs> So, so let's just be clear. So the data on post-exposure and pre-exposure prophylaxis for ivermectin in alpha is really robust. I mean, it is extremely powerful data. Clinically, um, and in my experience in Delta, it's much less robust. It's definitely protective. I mean, I, I know a lot of people who um, have been prophylaxed with ivermectin. They went to a function, they were around a bunch of people. They were the only ones who didn't get sick. At the same time, I do know people who prophylaxed with ivermectin and have breakthroughs. So breakthroughs are gonna happen. So nothing's perfectly protective. However, this is my point is, let's say you're around boosted relatives or whatever, and they're carrying the virus and you're on ivermectin and you do fall ill. Generally, my experience is, even those people who break through while on prophylaxis, their courses are much milder. They don't go to hospital. They don't get terribly ill um, in, in, in a large part. So um, I, I don't want to say, you know, a year ago, I was saying like it was nearly perfectly protective. And it seemed to be for a while. It, it's not that case anymore, um, but it will, it will generally assure you a much milder uh, uh, course and, and will uh, generally avoid mortality. Yeah. Do you expect the case counts to rise uh, given the upcoming Christmas holiday and New Year's around the world? Well, you know, whether it's the holidays or a seasonal, who knows? It's every every bit. But if, if you look at the curves from last year, man, this yeah. was a wicked time last year. I expect wow. it to be a wicked time again. I know. OK, a couple more questions and then we'll say goodnight. I know you have some wrap up uh, to do. Um, question from Ross. What is your opinion, Dr. Corey? Is it likely that Omicron could mutate perhaps into a more dangerous variant? We know Omicron, for the most part, we hear the data says it's it's more mild than the Delta. Yeah, so. I have to be careful when I'm in my lane and outside of my lane. I'm not a virologist. I'm not a doctor who specializes in the phylogeny of the, the viruses, but um, I do dabble and I do hang around with really smart folk. Um, yes, you do. Is, yeah, this is my take uh, in, in, in conversations with a lot of uh, very smart colleagues is that Omicron is a really kind of an odd bird. It, it seems to have originated from a virus we saw two years ago. So it's not like a natural evolution of Delta. Um, my main question with Omicron is that, yes, it does seem to be mild. And if it takes over and everybody gets Omicron, it's mild and nobody dies. And it displaces Delta, which means it gives you natural immunity to the more virulent variants like Delta, then we are home free, baby. However, okay. However, hold on. If Omicron gives us the natural immunity to the better variants, then we're doing good. The problem is because Omicron is infecting people who have natural immunity from Delta and from the vaccines, I think it's different enough that I don't know that it's going to displace Delta. Like one of my thoughts is that maybe you're going to have coexisting alpha, uh, Omicron and Delta. I, I basically... The best answer is I don't know. I think if I were to worry about a really bad mutation, 
it would be about Delta mutating into something more severe because Delta is really still a pain in the neck. I, I got to tell you, I am dealing with more Delta right now than I personally have been surrounded with in a year. I have more active patients. And by the way, I don't have an active outpatient practice right now. I have friends, friends of friends, contacts, colleagues, family, friends and friends of contact, colleagues and family. And that amount of people who are sick that I'm actively treating is the largest number I've had. They all have Delta and they're actually all a little bit difficult to treat. Ivermectin is not getting me through only. Many of them I'm treating later, but I'm having, I really have to do combination therapy on all. So I'm much wor- more worried about if Delta hangs around and or mutates. Uh-huh. Uh, I don't know enough about Omicron to say, but, but his question is like, Am I worried about a, a mutation that makes everything worse? Absolutely. I mean, that's what all the immunologists and vaccinologists have been saying. And a lot of them have been warning that mass vaccination in a coronavirus pandemic will create the circumstances for some of these escape variants. And so I'm worried about everything. Until we're done, I'm worried. Yeah. I just have a follow-up question because I don't think I know the answer to this. How do you know what's Delta and what's Omicron? How, how is that test? How do you test for that? Um, from what I read in the papers, <laughs> and that's literally the answer. I mean, so because Omicron is described as X, Y, and Z, um, I'm pretty sure I'm not seeing Omicron. Omicron is to me is generally mild. It's not sending people to the hospital. It's weathered very well. The people that I'm seeing are like, they're pretty sick. They're knocked down. A lot of them have sinus congestion, which is kind of pathognomonic for Delta, you know, heavy sinus congestion, lots of fatigue, um, persistent fevers. And those are the folks that I'm managing right now. They're, they're really beat up. And that's not what I'm reading about Omicron. Omicron, everyone's saying that it's mild and da, 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 da. Although there was the first death reported in, in the UK, we're not seeing apparently a lot of hospitalizations or death attributed to Omicron. So that's why I'm saying I'm pretty sure that I am drowning in Delta. And also epidemiologically, as of a week or two ago, 99% of everything that's been happening in the US is Delta. I know I think that's changing now with Omicron, but right. uh, my scent here's here's my other point is that if someone got Omicron, I bet you they wouldn't rise to my attention. That's true. The people who reach out to me are like not doing well. I, I mean, I don't get the easy cases. So um, that's why I assume that they're Delta. Wow. Wow. Final question for the night. You ready? Everyone wants to know where you got that really smart shirt. Oh, so to speak. Okay. I'm glad you asked. So here, I just want to get remind you guys that... Um, Tonight, we were going to do a little talk on melatonin, but um, Paul had to beg out. So uh, we'll, we'll, we'll pick up with this throughout the holidays, might, might be after New Year's. But we do want to get guys give you guys the gift of health, which is all of these um, uh, things that we think we're going to contribute to not only general health, but COVID health. Um, and so we're giving you the gift of a healthy immune system. And so follow our social media. We'll be giving you really nice, um, informative sort of uh, info, uh, info bullets on, on all of these aspects. Um, melatonin was the one that we were going to talk about tonight. We didn't do that. Um, but since you asked about my shirt, Joyce, 
Um, I did, and so did a lot of uh, viewers tonight. It seems that that would be a good segue to talk about how our online uh, FLCCC store, right? So we have a store where we've created merchandise. Again, it's not to enrich ourselves personally. It's really to, to, to support the organization. So this is a nonprofit organization. When you buy something from the store, about 30% of it uh, actually goes to the general supporting funds of the organization. And so um, this shirt I bought uh, from the store. And if you want to see some really cool stuff, the one thing that I'm really kicking myself, I actually own this T-shirt. I actually have it in long sleeve. It's awesome. I was wearing it all day yesterday. I love this thing. Uh, my kids are jealous of this. Um, but the, apparently the hot uh, item That's is the hot beanie. item. FLCCC beanie. So I'm actually going uh, skiing over the holidays. And I want to buy this for me and my whole family. And I want to see at the ski lifts how many people uh, can call out the FLCCC. So um, guys, go to our website right on there near the donate section. Um, there's a store. If you want any of this merchandise, uh, please go there. Look, look, the much more handsome man than I am wearing the same shirt that I am. But it's it's a cool shirt. So um, yeah, it if, is if a cool shirt. jealous, uh, go buy one. And I think you guys will like it. It looks great. It looks great. I'm going to have to go shopping there too. And like you said, all of the proceeds go to support the mission. And that's the most important thing. So, so Joyce, should we finish? So guys, if you stay with us, we're running a little over the hour, although we used to go an hour and a half, so we're not doing too bad. Um, <laughs> but what we want to do now is we have a, a cool video. Many of you guys have asked, um, like, how do we mix povidone iodine? How do we administer it? Like, what are you guys talking about when you're saying use 1% povidone iodine? And so um, we had Christina Moros, who's our one of our clinical support specialists. She's kind of like uh, the right-hand woman to me and Paul on a lot of aspects. Um, we asked her to do a little video showing how you should most properly mix it and administer it. Right, Joyce? Yeah, and I know Paul said doing this is one of the most important things you can do to keep yourself healthy and to, uh, to it really gets rid of a lot of the virus that can lodge, I guess, in your nasopharyngeal space. Is that right? See, I'm learning yeah. from the, the viral burden is really in the, the nose and throat. And so if, if, and viral loads actually predict your prognosis and trajectory. So if you can diminish the viral load that's carried in sort of the nasal pharyngeal carriage uh -huh. with something like povidone iodine, um, your trajectory should be different. And in the studies, they show that the, the, the likelihood of hospitalization is 19 fold lower. And so I think this video is really important as you go into the holidays. If you get sick, if you get a sniffle, I want to say one more thing, guys, because I've already heard it today in a conversation with someone. Remember Dr. Corey's edicts. Number one, there's no such thing as a cold anymore. If you feel like you're coming down with, quote, a cold, it's COVID until proven otherwise. Number one. Number two, if you have a cold and you get a test and it's negative for COVID, it's COVID until proven otherwise. And I tell you, there's too many people who have negative tests, sometimes two negative tests, and then they're positive. It's, it's, it's infuriating, it's vexing, but please keep in mind that really pretend that everything is COVID for right now, because you don't want to dismiss something as a cold and then find out on your third test when you're not feeling better seven days later that you actually had COVID and you missed your window for early intervention. 
please, I'm hearing this over and over and over again, people dismissing something as their yearly cold or they were negative and it's not COVID. I, I really wish I had a better answer for you, but please don't make that mistake. No, that, that's really good advice. So I guess what we're going to do is, uh, first of all, remind people that there is no webinar next week because of Christmas. And so we're going to take some time with uh, to take some days off and to just be with family. That's number one. And then um, can you say a word or two, Pierre, about um, how the donations help us achieve our mission? Oh, yeah, the donations. Um, you guys know... Um, Actually, you know what? I'll do two things. I'm going to talk about our donations. I also want to talk about, so we're going to take Christmas week off. And in the week between Christmas and New Year's, we're actually going to do an end of year um, sort of episode. Uh, Kelly Booman, who's our executive director extraordinaire. I might extraordinaire. Yes. Extraordinaire. Like you guys oh. don't understand that the reason why the FLCCC is still standing is actually Kelly Booman. Um, and, and only she knows that and the rest of us know that. But we know that we actually thought it'd be really great if she came on and showed like where this organization started a year ago, where it is now, the impact, the amount of support the alliance, how strong, how big, how deep it is. Um, I, I just think it's going to be a really great um, uh, sort of episode where, where Kelly's going to talk about where we are. Now, how we got there is largely through your support. So um, we are nonprofit. One of the things that Kelly's going to talk about is how our organization has filled out. You guys will have no idea how long it was literally like three or four of us unpaid Joyce or minimally paid, you know, <laughs> and even when we got paid, we were taking like no, almost no salaries. Um, you know, now we actually have a, a really expert, highly professional team of highly skilled folks. And, and I really think going forward, our impacts are going to be greater, but in order to continue to do that, please donate, please support us. We are like legit. We are flying high. We have really great, we have, we've just filled out with just an excellent uh, leadership team uh, as well as uh, staff members. And so um, we think 2022 is going to be better than 2021. So please continue to help us to do that. I think we are really making uh, historic and global impacts. And, and I want to do that in 2022. Yeah, we will. Better and healthier hope is the hope for 2022. So I guess we'll end with the video. We'll say goodnight, I, I would imagine. And then you'll watch the video and we'll be back in two weeks. And Betsy will be back. Yes. Hi, this is Christina Morris. I'm the clinical support specialist at the FLCCC. Today, I wanted to talk to you all about the nose drops spray solutions that are in our iMask Plus protocol. So. What I'm going to do is I'm going to do a screen share and show a very short slideshow to discuss how to make the solutions and how to use the solutions. So I'm going to start sharing my screen and we're going to get started. So first I want to show the, the protocol on our website. So let me just click and show you. So you come to protocols on our menu tab and you go down to iMask Plus and then you pan down all the way to the bottom of the page and you see the protocol and you use these arrows to flip back and forth through the protocol. So we're gonna go and talk about using these solutions and you can find that information here. Um, and then on the, in the notes, you can see a suggestion how to make and use the solution. 
So if you're having trouble finding that in the protocol, just refer to the protocol and look for it in the number six under notes. So let's go ahead and get started with the slideshow. So we're gonna talk about how to use the nasal drops and sprays. So the first thing we're gonna talk about is the 10% povidone iodine solution. So that's the solution that you can find at your drugstore at Walmart, anywhere. It's just your standard disinfectant cleaning solution that you would find for wound care. And we're going to make this into a 1% solution. So I'm gonna talk about two ways to do this today. There is a video on Odyssey that discusses in detail how to make the large solution but I'm gonna go over this very quickly today, also in the video. So the large solution is taking 25 cc's or one and a half tablespoons of povidone iodine and diluting it into a solution to make 250 cc's. So we use distilled water as our mix. We base this on studies that we've read. So that is why we, are, we don't mix using the normal saline. There's also a way you can make a smaller solution in 10 cc's, and that is to take a one cc amount of povidone iodine and mix it in nine cc's of distilled water. So there are various ways you can choose to make your solution. You can order the Neil Med bottle. You can order a, um, a just a no brand bottle. You can order syringes. You can order pipettes. I have a bag of pipettes, so that's what I do to use the solution. And basically I also ordered just a regular old solution bottle with marking lines from Amazon. You can, I, I can find everything on Walmart, Amazon, um, CVS, all the normal brands. I've been able to find these things. So they're not difficult to find. It's just using the internet to put a search in to find these things. Um, so if you don't have the extra money to pay for a kit that's already made or you can't afford to buy syringes, then we can talk about using what you have in the kitchen to make these solutions. So the most important thing when making a solution is using, or, or sorry, the most important thing before doing the solution is washing your hands. We always wanna make sure that we have clean hands when we make a solution. We always wanna make sure when we're done making the solution and using the solution that we make sure all of our components are also clean. So, Step one is to measure out and add the povidone iodine. So we're gonna take our povidone iodine, we're gonna measure out either 25 cc's with a syringe, or we're gonna take one and a half tablespoons of povidone iodine and we're gonna add it into our bottle of distilled water. You can also use pre-cooked water that is cooled off and if you don't have the money to buy distilled water. After that, we're going to add our solution to the container and fill it up to 250 cc's on the marked line so that our concentration is accurate. Then we're going to shake our bottle, make sure that we mix our solution up well, and we're going to put four to five drops in each nostril. You can also choose to use a cotton swab, but please don't stick a dirty cotton swab in your solution because you can contaminate the solution and then um, we don't want that because we're trying to actually keep everything clean. <laughs> and if you're using this solution between family members, you also need to make sure that you use clean components between every family member. And I would advise pouring the solution out and remaking a new solution just to keep everything clean. So here we go. So I just talked about that. And in this picture, I have the unmarked brand, or actually this one has a brand on it, but you can use an unmarked brand bottle that has a measuring line and you're gonna measure out your solution. So again, that's 25, cc's or milliliters 
or one and a half tablespoons of povidone iodine. So I'm just gonna show you how I apply the solution. I'm gonna use, use my pipette. I'm gonna squeeze up a little bit of solution. I'm gonna have a tissue or paper towel ready because it, it's brown and it can stain your clothes or your skin. And I'm gonna take this pipette, I'm gonna tilt my head back, I'm gonna put it into my nose and I'm gonna squeeze about four or five drops into my nose. So yes, a little bit of the solution may drip back into your throat. Just try not to swallow it. You can actually spit it out if you want to. If a little bit goes in the throat, it's, it's not gonna hurt you. And then I'm gonna do the same thing on in my other nostrils. So I'm gonna put the pipette in, I'm gonna tilt my head back, apply about four drops of solution. And I'm holding the tissue underneath my nose so it doesn't drip back. Again, if a little bit drips into your nose, it's not gonna hurt. You can see on my uh, paper towel, it does stain. So just make sure that you try not to get povidone iodine all over everything. So how do we make the smaller solution? I don't have these little bitty um, containers at my home or any syringes in my home right now, but I'm gonna explain how to make it. So you're gonna take either a syringe or you can use a teaspoon and you're gonna measure out your solution. If you're gonna use a little bitty spray bottle, you're probably gonna need um, something to help you get the solution into the bottle. That's why a syringe is easier. Or if you have like a little tiny little funnel, um, you could use that. Um, so what you're going to do is you're going to measure out one cc of povidone iodine. So that's like a very tiny little bit of a teaspoon, um, 0.2 of a teaspoon. So that's like a little, little tiny bit, like almost like less than a fourth of a teaspoon. And you're going to drop that in your bottle or um, suck it up in your syringe or drop it into a little bitty cup. And then you're going to add nine cc's, which is uh, a little bit more than one and three-fourths teaspoons of the distilled water. And then you're going to mix that up and you can either drop it in again with a pipette or you can spray it in the nose with four to five sprays. Again, you can find syringes online. All you have to do is um, do an internet search for syringes and you can find them on Walmart or Amazon. One other thing I wanted to talk about is the immune mist this is a brand. Dr. Merrick loves Immune Mist because it's just easy. It's just, you, you buy it, it's already made. You don't have to mix anything. It's just a little bit pricier than if you go and you do your own mix at home. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you how to use the Immune Mist. So you're going to take the nose spray. You're going to put the nose spray in one nostril. You're going to squeeze it four times. I'm going to catch any povidone iodine solution that sprayed that comes out of my nose and then I'm going to repeat on the other side so and you can see that it's a little bit messy so you're going to need to make sure that you don't get that all over your face and all over your clothes so and if you wipe it clean in between make sure it's a clean um, tissue or paper towel or that you use alcohol to uh, to wipe off the nozzle in between so I'm going to take it squirt it four times in my nose, catch out the remaining solution that's draining out of my nose and make sure that it doesn't drain down my face or get onto my clothes. The immune mist does burn a little bit because I do believe they may have saline in their solution. Um, so the distilled water uh, doesn't burn when you apply it. 
I hope this helped a little bit to explain what you can do with the nasal drops and sprays. If you have any questions or you would like to see the studies about this information, you can email me at clinical at flccc.net. Thanks. See you guys later. Bye.